Welcome to this edition of the Glyndebourne Podcast with me, Katie Derham. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen of the Moderate Soprano Company. The stage is now available for warm-up. The stage is now available for warm-up. Thank you. I'm here at the Duke of York's Theatre in London's West End, which is currently home to a play by one of Britain's foremost playwrights, Sir David Hare. The play's called The Moderate Soprano, and it tells the extraordinary story of the founding of Glyndebourne Festival Opera in the Sussex countryside by Captain John Christie and his wife, the moderate soprano herself, Audrey Mildmay. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your Act One beginner's call for the moderate soprano. It's a story of their love affair against the backdrop of the impending Second World War at a time when many of the most important figures in European arts were fleeing Nazi Germany. Three of them found a home at Glyndebourne, Karl Ebert, Fritz Busch and Rudolf Bing. Stand by please all technical departments for the top of Act One. Stand by please for the top of Act One. My guest today is the Olivier Award-winning actor Roger Allen, renowned for his Shakespearean roles such as Falstaff and for TV comedy The Thick of It and Radio 4's Cabin Pressure. Roger is playing the role of John Christie, and in this podcast I'm going to be backstage with him to find out what it's like to play a man for whom opera was the guiding passion and principle of his life, and how he and Audrey Mildmay made the dream of an opera house in the Sussex Downs a reality. So thank you so much for joining me, and I do hope you enjoy my conversation with Roger Allen. So, Roger, thank you so much for talking to us about, uh, about John Christie, the man you're playing. What sense do you have of him as a man? Well, I was um, blown away by him, really, as this sort of force of nature, this uh, 19th century man uh, from a very wealthy background who just uh, had this... A great sense of uh, responsibility of what to do with his wealth and with his land, and also just to do anything that took his interest. I mean, the organ works and the building works, uh, the putting electricity in Glyndebourne. I was just um, terribly impressed by that. And also his seemingly very natural eccentricity that was, you know, utterly unforced, unselfconscious, various stories about the way he dressed. (laughs) But uh, I was extremely drawn to him, and also his attraction to opera. And I think, you know, art does this in lots of ways, maybe music especially, and maybe opera particularly, uh, is that it sort of seemed to provide for him a direct and powerful route to his own feelings. You mentioned his passion and the energy. It must be huge fun to play a man like that. Oh, hugely. Huge, huge fun, yes. I wish that I didn't have to wear a bald cap and a fat suit, but, you know, when it's hot <laughs> especially. But, no, he is great fun to play. And, indeed, when I first read the play, when we did it at Hampstead, right at the top of the play, it said John Christie comes on, he is short, fat, bald, and wearing lederhosen. And part of the kind of infantile nature of being an actor made me think, I have to play that part. (laughs) That is the part for me. (laughs) Well, you did mention there were eccentricities that you couldn't explore in the play on stage. What were your favourite tales of him? Well, there's a tale about him going to uh, Bayreuth in 1911, I think, with Dr Lloyd and another friend from Eton. And he had an early Daimler. He was such a, he was a hugely, you know, he was very early on. He, he was 
passionate as well about cars. And um, there, there were no car ferries then, of course, so uh, he, he wanted to take the Daimler. He wanted to drive to Bayreuth. So the story is that he, they, the car was put on a barge and the barge was towed uh, by a ferry. Some versions of the story have it that the three of them sat in the car being towed on the barge. Across the English Channel. Yes. I mean, I think that's just extraordinary. How about your own relationship with opera? Do you have a love for the art form? I, I, I do. I don't go a great deal now. But um, I used to sing in the choir. My father was a vicar. And I went to a very musical uh, school. Uh, and when my voice broke, it sort of settled down and was still good. And I started having singing lessons. And, um, and then when I went to university, by some strange accident... I had singing lessons in the holidays with the vocal consultant at English National Opera at the Coliseum, John Hargreaves, and he was very, very encouraging. One time I came out from a singing lesson and uh, Rudolf Nureyev was rehearsing. I used to sit there in the dark watching them. It was fantastic. I went to Covent Garden where, for instance, uh, I, I was in the same room as Pavarotti at his height and that is, you know, to me, that is completely astounding. When he hit a high C in, I think it was Tosca, I think it was Zeffirelli's production of Tosca, to be in the same room as that, it literally kind of, it, 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 it really does take your breath away. Now, I think that might have <laughs> confirmed my decision as well, really, <laughs> probably to go in the way of acting rather than singing, because you think, well, if I knew I could do that, that would be the most amazing thing but um you know i know there are lots of other ways to be a singer other than pavarotti but uh, you you know what i mean no, i mean it was utterly utterly thrilling ladies and gentlemen this is your act one beginner's call for the moderate soprano your call please miss carol and mr allen your call please miss carol and mr allen thank you now of course the play and the story of course of Glyndebourne isn't just about John Christie but it's about this wonderful relationship between him and Audrey Mardmay. How would you describe that relationship? Well he was head over heels in love with her and I think I think she loved him hugely as well and I think they uh, I, I, uh, I think as a team they were sort of greater than they were individually I think they really needed each other um, and he was the engine, if you like, and the energy, and she sort of was almost like the captain or steered it. I've seen in, it described as a diplomat, for sure. Uh, there we are. Yes, in the, uh, yes, in the project of Glyndebourne, I think that was, that was their relationship. But, you know, tragically, they didn't have nearly as long together as they could. She was in Canada for four years in the war. You know, she died tragically young. There's something epic, though, isn't there, about their tale and their story. Yes, and there certainly like... is, yes, yeah, there really is. How did they meet? John, he used to organise these kind of concert parties in, uh, at Glyndebourne. Audrey was one of the singers. He saw her and heard her voice and was smitten. And so the story goes, he showed her round the house <laughs> and showed her the bedroom and said, this is where you'll sleep when we're married. He, he pursued her. She was touring with the Carl Rosa Opera Company. He pursued her around the country and would often send hampers from Fortnum's and Mason's of delicious food. 
And that was it, really. And after about three or four months, she agreed to marry him. Punchies the phrase that springs to mind. I mean, reason, yeah. reasonably presumptuous. Absolutely. <laughs> on a first you know, date. bold. <laughs> Good on him. Very, very bold. And I think also, I mean, the fact that they worked together so well and that they, between them, built this wonderful place, they really, really did luck out that those three Germans who were possibly the best people in the entire world, if you were starting an opera house should be available, as it were, escaping Nazi Germany. Well, do tell that tale, because, of course, the play and their story is, is, is entwined with that of John and Audrey's. What was this, was this great piece of luck? Well, the fact that they were, all of them, Fritz Busch, a great conductor who'd been sacked from running the Dresden Opera in the 30s, although they, they, Goering had tried to tempt him back, and he brought with him Carl Abert, who was a great, great theatre director, and they'd worked together several times. Carl Abert started out as an actor. He, he was trained by the great Max Reinhardt. Uh, and Rudolf Bing, who was a, a sort of administrative genius. To get those three people, especially in a sense, to begin with, Bush and Abert, the more you read about it, the, the German opera... And the Dresden way of doing things was absolutely about the kind of unifying of all the arts, music and design and acting and everything. Wagner's great dream, you know. So to bring that to this country is to bring the most sophisticated approach to making music drama that existed at the time and to, to this day. But this is the character of the madness did. Energetic, bullish, full of ideas, visionary. Difficult, though, and obviously his relationships with a lot of the people he worked with at Glyndebourne weren't the smoothest. No, I mean, I think he had, you know, very, very fixed ideas about how things should be. I think there were plenty of arguments with the, with the three Germans, and part of the story of the play is how you have to try and sort out who has control within a group of people. John wanted to open with Parsifal, and for all kinds of reasons, that was not a suitable opening thing to do. And probably, you know, and I very much doubt if Glyndebourne would still be with us if, if he'd succeeded in having his way on that score. The resistance and the grit, you know, between them is all part of what makes any theatre opera company work, I think, really. Frictions. But, Creative uh, tension. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Because for all the, the, the wonderful intentions and the energy and, uh, of John and the, the taste of Audrey, it could easily have been a disaster without those three gems. Well, not a disaster, but it wouldn't have become what it was. It wouldn't have introduced the Dresden way of doing things, the most sophisticated way of doing things on these shores. I didn't even realise until very recently that still, after the war, Covent Garden continued to do opera in English. So Glyndebourne was the first place in this country, with any regularity, where opera was sung in its original language. And uh, the other thing, of course, they established, which is still fairly rare in, in international opera, is rehearsals, that you have to be there and rehearse like you would a proper play, rather than just turn up and uh, and give the performance that's in your repertoire. And, of course, many of them stay 
in Glamborn as well. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Which adds a whole different level to the, yes. I think, to, to the company feeling and the atmosphere. I yeah. don't think you can tell that when you're sitting yes, in the audience. You can. I mean, it made me think quite a lot about. I spent uh, most of the eighties at uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company. It did make me think about working in Stratford. I mean, there is something about being able to walk to work through beautiful gardens to do these magnificent plays that I'm sure is the same in Glyndebourne. You know, it it, it leads to great happiness. Thanks for listening to this Glyndebourne podcast, and my thanks to Roger Allen for chatting to me. The Moderate Soprano runs until the 30th of June at the Duke of York's Theatre in London. You can find more fascinating conversations in our podcast feed, where you'll find me talking to best-selling novelist Kate Moss about her love for Debussy. Or you can dive into our back catalogue of podcasts, which zoom in on the exquisite beauty of opera by composers ranging from Mozart to Britain, Strauss to Brett Dean. I'm Katie Derham, and I would be delighted if you'd join me again.